hope, maybe even for us. We need a lot more people raising the ruckus, start making a fuss, start giving up. And get out into the streets, and there may be hope. Hello, you're listening to KUBU, Low Power FM Radio in Sacramento. This is The Voice, The Voice of Sacramento. You can find KUB locally at 96.5 on your FM dial, or you can also listen to the station on the internet, accesssacramento.org. This program is The Climate Report, and I'm your host, Dale Steele. We're on weekly at this day and time. The program is brought to you by 350 Sacramento, a local climate action group inspired by 350.org. I'll be your host, and each program will provide you with local, regional, and national news about climate change, as well as local calendar events, interviews, and more. For more details, including past radio programs, or if you have questions or comments, please visit 350sacramento.org. On the Climate Report, you may think that climate disruption is arriving sooner than we were told. Well, you're right. Three powerhouse scientists have recently published a warning entitled, Global Warming Will Happen Faster Than We Think, an article in prestigious journal Nature that came out last December. They explained that three emerging effects that combine to bring climate danger out of the year 2100 and right into the next decade. Today we'll hear part of a recent interview on EcoShock about that new article from one of the co-authors who's a professor of international relations and the director of the Laboratory of International Law and Regulation at the University of California. You can also hear more of this interview on the podcast version of this show, which will be posted on the 350sacramento.org website. And I also encourage you to listen to the entire EcoShock interview, which also has links to the references given. Elsewhere in the show, we're going to hear about the efforts to get Sacramento to join other cities in declaring a climate emergency that greenhouse gas emissions are rising, and hear about the impressive work and statements of young climate activists. Music today, I've got a new song by The Killers, entitled The Land of the Free, and then an old song from 1983, a solar energy song. And now, find some shelter and get ready. It's time for the Climate Report. You may believe climate disruption is arriving sooner than we were told. You are right. Three powerhouse scientists have published a warning. Global warming will happen faster than we think. They explain three emerging threats that combine to bring climate danger out of that year 2100 and right into the next decade. Our guide to the comment published by the prestigious journal Nature is co-author David G. Victor. At the University of California, San Diego, Dr. Victor is a professor of international relations and director of the Laboratory on International Law and Regulation. We're interested in this in part because we're worried about the impacts and in part because we're concerned about the politics and we're, we're thinking as, as the effects of climate change become more tangible that more people are going to, to want to do something about it because it's, you know, frankly, serious political action on climate change is you know, decades overdue. So let's focus on those three trends that will, quote, combine over the next 20 years to make climate change faster and more furious than anticipated, end quote. And point one is rising emissions. That is kind of a surprise to us all. Talk to us about that, David. Yeah, it's interesting. The decade or two ago, the IPCC, the same body that assesses the climate science, put together a set of scenarios for future emissions. 
and they did the, as is typical in this business. They did scenarios where there's no no real change in policy, you get very high emissions. Scenarios with the various kinds of changes in policy, including scenarios that would bend emissions down, eventually have 50, 80 percent cuts in global emissions consistent with stopping warming at, at two degrees. And so there's this kind of range of scenarios because we don't know what the, what's going to happen in the future. What, what's interesting to me as an analyst of the energy system is that emissions today are basically on track for the highest emission scenarios that, that were published uh, a decade or two ago, which means that despite all the talking about climate change, there's not a lot of doing. So, so emissions keep going up. There's a study out just in the last couple of days that U.S. emissions were up, I think, about 2.8% last year, even though they've been declining for, for more than a decade prior to that. Global emissions are up higher than people expected. There was a study that came out of the same issue of nature as, as our article. And so when you take a step back from this, I think it's very important that we have these diplomatic conferences and all this policy activity around climate change. But when you look at the data and the impact on emissions, you're not seeing it. Well, the new understanding, which, again, we don't know exactly, but the new understanding is kind of double that rate in that, in that ballpark. And what we, the argument we made in our article was that it's accelerating. So it's not just that it's rising linearly at a rate faster than 0.1 degree, but that the rate itself is growing. And that's, that's what's really concerning here is you've got an exponential process with lots of uncertainty, risks that the system could really, the climate system could really get out of control, and that the system is being torqued with these building emissions in the atmosphere. Atmosphere, and that's uh, causing exponential changes, not linear changes. The second trend that you pinpoint in the comment is the partial success by government regulations to reduce air pollution. Surely less smog is good news for our lungs, but how is it also bad news? Well, most of what you do to address other environmental problems also helps reduce climate change. But in a few areas, they work in opposite directions. And and this is one of the areas. There are especially coal-fired power plants, but a variety of other sources, but especially coal-fired power plants emit a lot of pollutants. They emit carbon dioxide, which is what causes climate change. They emit nitrogen oxides, which cause acid rain and local air pollution effects. They emit sulfur dioxide, which causes acid rain, and a variety of other pollutants. Sulfur dioxide is, is the one that we're talking a lot about in our article. And what happens to sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere is it turns into sulfate particles, which make clouds brighter. And so they, they actually ironically cool the planet a little bit. And the Chinese know that they've got a huge air, local air pollution and regional air pollution problem. So they've been investing very heavily in controlling emissions from their coal-fired power plants. They've shut down old inefficient plants, built new kinds of coal-fired power plants with all the latest pollution control equipment, and it's on and operating. And so they've very quickly lowered their emissions of these other pollutants. And that's been really good for Chinese health, and they need to do more. But it's uh, ironically lessened this brightening effect, the mask, if you like, that's existed on climate warming. And that mask um, has had a large offsetting effect on climate warming. And so as that mask is removed more rapidly than this, almost all the scenarios have predicted, that's contributing to the accelerated warming. You've already raised the third major driver covered in your comment that faster warming could come because of entering a natural warm phase that could last for a couple of decades. That's probably the hardest for the public to understand. Could you take a couple of minutes to explain why a natural warming may pile on to our greenhouse pollution? Yeah, there are a lot of different things going on. Let me just talk about one as an illustration. One of the things that people are concerned about is that the circulation of the oceans uh, might change. With In fact, probably will change with climate warming. And in the past, it has changed. Um, and so 
when the circulation speeds up or slows down, that alters how much heat it can be taken out of the surface oceans and put into the deep oceans. And so those are the kinds of natural cycles that could be amplified or slowed down or adjusted as a result of climate warming. And then that, in turn, would have an effect on the globally averaged uh, surface temperature and therefore would have an effect on whether we're, we're meeting our goals. Can you give us any examples of what governments could do for rapid adaptation to faster climate change? One of the things I think is interesting about adaptation to climate change is that politically, it's almost the opposite of controlling emissions. So in controlling emissions, you really need central governments to adopt policies across the entire economy. You spend a ton of money that affects organized interest groups today, and the benefits are far uh, far in the future. Uh, uh, adapting to climate impacts are the exact opposite. Most adaptation is local. Um, it affects, you know, communities that are affected by potential inundation from rising sea levels, extreme storms, wildfires, all those kinds of things, is, is mainly a local and to some degree regional planning activity. And whether or not you believe in climate science, if the ocean is rising, you've got to do something about it. And so the politics of adaptation are actually going to be easier, I think, than the politics of controlling emissions in the, in, in the first place. So I think that's the, that that's the key point here is we're starting to see in, in the United States, for example, even places that have voters who are most skeptical about climate science, like in Florida, um, and voted people who voted for Trump and, and, and are thrilled that Trump is leaving the Paris Agreement, those are exactly the communities that are on the front lines of climate impacts and are being forced to develop adaptation measures. But there's no silver bullet in adaptation. It's lots of stuff. It's seawalls. It's nourishing sand on beaches. It's moving houses that are in vulnerable areas. It's bigger fire breaks. It's just a, it's a whole dog's breakfast of activities that you need to do, and they're all bespoke to local conditions. There's been a lot of attention to the U.S. government leaving the scene because of the Trump administration, and that's unfortunate, and my guess is that will change, uh, but it will require new elections. But at the same time, other parts of the U.S. are still there, and, and I think that's increasingly the story is to make real progress on the climate change problem requires leadership and, and, and jurisdictions that demonstrate here's how to control emissions, here's what it really costs. And that leadership is mostly coming from smaller jurisdictions and not big countries. Uh, and in the United States, it's coming from the coastal zones, in particular California, where, where, where I live. And you're seeing leadership from individual firms. You're seeing leadership from parts of Canada. You're seeing leadership from lots of places. And so we need to help the leaders do a better job leading and, in particular, help the leaders develop strategies that can be easily replicated in other parts of the world because it's, you know, it just doesn't help for a leader that doesn't emit very much to come up with a fancy way of controlling emissions. They've got to have something that scales ultimately to the globe. We have been talking with Dr. David G. Victor, Professor of International Relations and Director of the Laboratory on International Law and Regulation at UC San Diego. David is co-author of the paper, Global Warming Will Happen Faster Than We Think. You can find links to follow up on all of this in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org.
You're listening to KUBU, Low Power FM Radio in Sacramento. This is The Voice, The Voice of Sacramento. You can find KUB locally at 96.5 on your FM dial, or you can also listen to the station on the Internet, accesssacramento.org. This program is The Climate Report, and I'm your host, Dale Steele. Across my face It's just the old man and me Washing his truck at the Sinclair station In the land of the free His mother, Radeline's family Came on a ship Cut coal and planted a sea Down in them drift mines of pencil in the land of the free Land of the free land In the land of the free 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 In the land of the free When I go out in my car
song by the Killers, entitled The Land of the Free. People are great at rising to the occasion in an emergency, as we're seeing all too often on an increasing basis. If you happen to be there when a fire or flood occurs, chances are you'll pitch in alongside emergency service workers to do whatever's needed. Neighbors help neighbors, and strangers help strangers. Well, we're now in the biggest emergency ever, the climate emergency. Already people are dying and ecosystems are being destroyed. We know what needs to be achieved right now, and we already have the technology to do it. We must face up to the climate facts, go into emergency emergency mode and throw everything we've got at restoring a safe climate. We know from our experience of full-time wartime mobilizations that amazing economic transformations can be achieved in just a few years when we face an existential threat. So let's demand equally strong leadership and action from our peacetime government in order to protect everything that we love. A climate emergency declaration has been prepared calling to declare a climate emergency. Petitions are available at national, state, and local levels, and a number of governments are adopting those petitions now. You can find more information on this at climateemergencydeclaration.org. On October 30th, 2018, the City of Oakland passed a resolution endorsing a declaration of a climate emergency and requesting regional collaboration with an immediate and just transition and emergency mobilization effort to restore a safe climate. Oakland's following in the footsteps of Berkeley and Richmond, becoming the third California city to declare a climate emergency and launch an emergency speed mobilization. Other cities and states around the world are taking similar action. The Oakland City Council voted unanimously to pass this resolution, marking a growing movement of cities treating global warming like the emergency it is. That means that the city will rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions and seek to reach zero net emissions at emergency speed and create plans to protect residents and especially frontline communities from worsening climate disasters and work with local cities, counties, and public agencies around the San Francisco Bay Area to bring them into a rapid just transition mobilization as well. Oakland's resolution combines the need to stop climate change in its tracks with a commitment to social justice, calling for a rapid just transition from an extractive, destructive, and racist economy towards equitable, regenerative, and local living economies that uphold human rights and the earth support systems. You can read this resolution at oakland.legistar.com. That's oakland.legistar.com. Now, other American cities are gearing up. The city of Los Angeles is also getting ready to declare an equitable emergency response to global warming as it considers a mobilization from one of its council members to create a climate emergency mobilization department. In Hoboken, New Jersey, and Montgomery County, Maryland, and have also passed similar climate emergency declarations recently. Climate Mobilization is a national organization devoted to launching an emergency mobilization to restore a safe climate. They ask institutions and communities to respond to climate change and ecological destruction as an emergency, demanding that the only response that makes sense, that's a massive, just mobilization to protect humanity and the natural world. Find out more from them at theclimatemobilization.org.
emissions are on the rise again. I'm NPR Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner. This is Climate Cast. 
Some troubling news for climate watchers this month. A new study in the journal Environmental Research Letters projects a 2.7% increase in global greenhouse gas emissions this year. Emissions edged slightly higher last year after three years of nearly flat emissions. But how and why emissions are rising is a bigger story. Rob Jackson is an earth sciences professor at Stanford University. I asked him what the numbers mean. The last couple of years, several things have happened. The developing world is still using more energy. Countries like India are building coal and nuclear and renewables at breakneck pace because they have hundreds of millions of people without access to electricity still today. This year, we have seen China's emissions go up quite a bit. And they have green-lighted some coal-based projects that they have put on hold out of concerns for air quality. But it's not all about those other countries. Here in the U.S., uh, our oil use is going up steadily. And we have some unusual weather this year that led to higher heating and cooling loads. So our emissions are up a couple of percent for the first time in a decade or more. I see the European Union emissions actually decreased slightly. What is Europe doing right? Europe has the longest track record of emissions declines. We're seeing much more aggressive development of wind and solar power in the electricity sector. We have some countries, some of the Scandinavian countries that are selling a third of the vehicles as electric cars. So they're moving aggressively, not just in the electricity sector, as we are in the U.S., but they're decarbonizing their vehicle fleets at a much faster rate than we are. So the big atmospheric question then for climate impacts is, what has to happen for global emissions to peak and start a downward trend? Uh, Several things have to happen. Uh, We have to provide all the incentives we can to help countries like India choose to build as many uh, wind and solar facilities and low-carbon technologies as possible. Every time we or anyone else puts a new coal plant on the ground, even a new natural gas plant, we're talking about emissions for 30 or 40 years. We have to have steeper cuts in the developed world, the richer world, like Europe and the United States, to offset uh, you know, a billion or so people around the world who still live in energy poverty. The best thing that's happening is just the radical growth we're seeing in wind and solar power. And it's driven not first and foremost by climate policy. It's driven by economics. Industrialized solar facilities are now as cheap as, as coal as natural gas, and consumers want clean power. So I'm optimistic that eventually we will, we will get there. I'm just not sure how long it's going to take. Rob Jackson, Earth Sciences Professor at Stanford University, thanks for sharing your work and your insight today. Thank you so much. My name is Marian Michaels. I'm 25 years old. I live in Minneapolis. I'm one of the regional leads in Minnesota for Sunrise Movement. I am working to stop climate change by helping to get leaders elected who will fight for a future for all of us. After the election, we heard from Nancy Pelosi that she had plans to revive a select committee that had the purpose of convening hearings and investigating on climate change and reporting to the public. But we need action, and we need action now. So... I went in November with a group of 200 young people from Sunrise Movement to ask Nancy Pelosi to create not a select committee on climate change, but a select committee on a Green New Deal. The Green New Deal will rapidly transition our economy and our society away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy in order to stop climate change. It also comes with a guarantee that anyone who wants a good job with a fair wage to assist in that transition will be able to get one. 
I went back again just this past week, and I was with a group of 1,000 young people to ask Speaker Pelosi again to create this committee. It felt incredibly powerful to have been there a month ago and even more amazing and hopeful about our future and about our future in stopping climate change to be there with so many other young people who are as dedicated as I am. That's ClimateCast. I'm NPR Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner. My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old and I'm from Sweden. I speak on behalf of Climate Justice Now. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. But to do that, we have to speak clearly, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. You only speak of green, eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. You only talk about moving forward with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess, even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake. You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and a living planet. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money. Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. It is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you.
Don't forget to check out my other radio program on KUBU, Making Tracks, focusing on wildlife, nature, and environmental issues every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m., right after the Climate Report. And be sure to tune in Tuesdays at 1 p.m. for Radio EcoShock and the latest on science, issues, and authors dealing with climate change and the environment on a global scale. Hosted and produced by Alex Smith. Don't miss it. You're listening to KUBU, Low Power FM Radio in Sacramento. This is The Voice, The Voice of Sacramento. You can find KUB locally at 96.5 on your FM dial, or you can also listen to the station on the internet, accesssacramento.org. This program is The Climate Report, and I'm your host, Dale Steele, drawn weekly at this day and time. This program is brought to you by 350 Sacramento, a local climate action group inspired by 350.org. I'll be your host, and each program will provide you with local, regional, and national news about climate change, as well as local calendar events, interviews, and more. For more details, including past radio programs, or if you have questions or comments, please visit 350sacramento.org. There may be hope, maybe even for us. We need a lot more people raising the ruckus, start making a fuss, start giving a Get out into the streets and there may be hope 